verses 1 through 6, and then 17 through 31. If you'd like to follow along in the Black Pew Bibles sitting in front of you, um, you can turn to page 1392. Page 1392. Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and then 17 through 31. Please rise for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the front of thousands. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had brought, taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. We're skipping down to verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing the king, to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven among, from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of the beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God who rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored." Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, many. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. 
Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, thank you for this word. We ask now for your spirit to guide us, for your spirit to give us illumination, deeper understanding into the text that we might not just know, but that we might learn and live out your truth, that we might receive your conviction your loving rebuke, and that we might submit ourselves under your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're back in a series going through the first six books of Daniel. We had looked at chapters one to three before we jumped into a little mini-series on uh, the the Protestant Reformation commemorating the 500th anniversary. Uh, That was in October. But now we're back, and we're going to finish up Daniel, well, just up to chapter six this month before we move into an Advent series um, in the book of Hebrews. Now, since it's been a, a while since we've been in Daniel, I want to remind you why we chose to study Daniel. Uh, the book itself contains a number of stories, particularly about Jewish exiles who were removed from their homeland and planted into a city, into a culture that was very pagan and was very, very hostile to their faith. You see, these, these Jewish exiles grew up in an environment that was very conducive for believing in one true God, where everyone around them just believed the same thing. But suddenly, these young exiles find themselves in a Babylonian culture that was very pluralistic, that was very intolerant of anyone making absolute or exclusive truth claims, saying that there's only one true God and that we won't bow down to any of the cultural idols of the day. They found themselves in hot water. They found themselves in a, in a hot furnace, literally. So as we see Daniel and his friends navigating the ocean of culture, making difficult choices to swim upstream against the tide, we, as readers today, are instructed on how we can do the same thing in our culture, in our context. Because there, friends, is a tidal wave of pressure pushing against Christians today, pressuring us to conform, pressuring us to go with the flow, to join the right side of history. And so here in Daniel, we are shown how a Christian can live in the ocean of culture and yet still swim against the tide. Now, in the earlier chapters, we were learning lessons from Daniel and his friends when when they were young teens, when they were young men. But here in chapter 5, Daniel is an old man by this time, likely He's in his 80s. By this time, the great king Nebuchadnezzar of chapters 1 through 4 is long dead. Over two decades have passed since Nebuchadnezzar, and the man in charge of the city of Babylon is called King Belshazzar. 
Now, I know the text uh, calls Nebuchadnezzar his father, but really that term in ancient custom could just refer to any of your forefathers, any of your predecessors. And so what this means is that Daniel has outlasted Babylonian king after Babylonian king, and now Belshazzar is the last. Now, any kind of study of chapter 5 is really going to have to be done in context to what we already looked at last week in chapter 4, because they really play off of each other. If, if you remember from last week, and as you, read, as you heard chapter 5 read, you would probably notice a lot of similar themes here. Because in both chapters, we meet very prideful kings who fail to realize who's the true king, who's the, the true sovereign of the world. And in both chapters, Daniel is brought in to reveal a mystery and, and to issue a stern warning and rebuke from God himself. But the big difference, the big difference between the two chapters is how the two kings respond to warning and rebuke. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, he eventually repents. We hear in his own words, we hear him bless, praise, and honor God in chapter 4, uh, verses 34 to 35. In his own words, he, he is praising God. And in verse 36 of chapter 4, we are told he's restored to his sanity, he's restored to his throne. Daniel chapter 4 illustrates for us a very important biblical principle in a narrative form. It is teaching us how repentance leads to restoration no matter how wicked your past. Nebuchadnezzar, he, he was no choir boy. He ransacked Jerusalem. He, he desecrated the temple of God. He built giant idols of gold. And he threw innocent people in the fiery furnaces. And yet, and yet through repentance, he experienced restoration. Belshazzar, though, on the other hand, he illustrates Another biblical principle, a related one, repentance leads to restoration no matter how wicked your past, but here in Daniel chapter 5, we are reminded that defiance leads to downfall no matter how secure your present. Defiance leads to downfall no matter how secure your present might look. Things in your life, they could be fine, or at least that's the impression that you give to everyone. But your downfall is at the door if you defy God and if you refuse to humble yourself and repent. That's really the main point in our text. And my goal this morning is to challenge each of you to really take stock of your own life. To not let appearances fool you into thinking that your life is secure if, if you have yet to humble yourself before the Lord. If sovereign kings of vast empires stand no chance when they defy God, then who are we kidding but ourselves to think that we can get by God, we can get by by, by ignoring God and, and ignoring all of his many warnings. This passage is where we get the popular saying, the writing is on the wall. It's usually meant to, to signal for us a warning to say the writing is on the wall is, is to warn of the inevitable. And so I just kind of want to stick with this kind of motif of, of, of warning. And I want to give you three warnings that we can find in our text. If you want to look in your bulletin, 
find your outline, and I've listed out three warnings for us, three writings on the wall, three warnings on the wall for us. The first goes like this. Don't ignore the inevitability of death. Second, don't defy the sovereignty of the Most High God. And third, don't fail to learn from the error and example of others. So let's consider the first warning that goes like this. Don't ignore the inevitability of death. You know, we do that all the time. That is, we, we try our hardest to never think about death, particularly our own. And our culture is doing the best it can to help, to keep us distracted, to keep our minds off the inevitable, to just stay busy, stay entertained, stay focused on the weekend. Don't think about the future. But then God, in his sovereign ways, will occasionally give us stark reminders of our mortality. How can we continue to ignore the prospect of death when literally seven days ago, 27 people were gunned down in a rural Baptist church outside of San Antonio doing exactly what we are doing right now. Worshiping our risen king. Hearing his preached word. And they lost their lives. We need reminders like that. We need warnings like that. It's what Belshazzar needed as well because he was doing all he could to ignore the inevitable. And his denial took the form of a raucous party. He threw a party for a thousand guests. Look with me at verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, Having some historical context here really will help you understand what's going on. See, we're told at the end, the very last verse of chapter 5, that on this very night, the Medo-Persian army broke through the city and killed Belshazzar. Now, when you get to that very last verse, it's quite surprising if, if you're the reader, if you're reading this for the first time, but it shouldn't have been a surprise for Belshazzar and all the citizens of Babylon because according to historical records, we know that they had been under siege by Darius the Mede. Darius is the top general of Cyrus, the great king of Persia. And, and records tell us that the Babylonian army had already, de, had already been defeated by Darius just a couple of days earlier. And so Belshazzar, he totally knew that the, Babyl, uh, that the Medes and Persians were coming for them. And so his, his downfall is quite literally at the door, and yet he's throwing a party. What in the world could have been going on in his head? Was he not concerned with a massive army encamped right outside the city gates? Did he really think that he was going to weather this storm out? You know, that, that would have been a pure and obvious form of pride, if, if that's what he was thinking, for, for him to carry such an air of, of invincibility, to actually be partying while your city is under siege. But you know, on the other hand, perhaps... That wasn't what he was thinking. Perhaps Belshazzar is actually afraid, deathly afraid, and he would rather distract himself and deny the inevitable. And if you think about it, that's also a form of pride, a much more subtle form, but it's pride. 
When we ignore the inevitability of death, pride is driving that. It's lurking in the background. You see, when we are actually willing to face our mortality, when we are willing to accept the fact that our few decades here on earth is just a mere blip, a mere blip on the timeline of history, to face that fact with honesty requires humility. It requires the acceptance of our creatureliness, our humanity. But to deny such things, to to ignore that truth, to pretend to be immortal, to act like you're going to live forever, that is a form of pride. You are putting yourself in the place of God, the only immortal. That's the epitome of pride. The humble, the humble will own their creatureliness. They know they're going to die one day. They know that that could be any day because they know they're not God. And and they know that they don't determine the number of their days. That's God's job. That's why humble people are able to speak freely of their own death without getting squeamish, without getting morbid and, and depressing. But the proud, on the other hand, the proud get very uncomfortable around the topic of death. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to be reminded that they're not, they're not any different, that they're going to die just like the rest of us. And that's why, friends, if you seek humility, if you desire to be more humble, then you have to confront your fear of death. This is why. This is why the humblest of Christians are the ones who have the deepest, most abiding hope in the eternal life that Christ secures. If you want to grow in humility, then you've got to grow in your love and appreciation for the Savior who defeated death by death, who went to the cross to win victory over death, who proved it through his empty tomb. Friends, let me ask you, when was the last time you gave serious consideration to your own death? Or have you been doing all you can to push that frightful thought out of your mind? Distracting yourself with mindless entertainment? Surrounding yourself with friends and acquaintances, maybe hundreds, perhaps even thousands of them? Numbing yourself with with meaningless sex and strong drink? That was certainly Belshazzar's strategy. That's what he tried to do. He tried to ignore the inevitability of death but God brought it to his doorstep. He was completely unprepared. What about you? What about you? Are you prepared for your own death? That's the first warning here in our text, not to ignore the inevitable. Now the second warning goes like this, don't defy the sovereignty of the most high God. Don't defy God. If we read on, we see Belshazzar asking for the holy goblets that Nebuchadnezzar had ransacked from Solomon's temple. Look at verse 3 with me. And then, he, and then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, uh, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, why did he do that? 
Why did he ask for the holy goblets? Did, did, he just, did he literally just run out of cups at the party? He's like, man, we got no more you know, red solo cups. Someone get the, get the gold goblets. Let's keep this party going. Is that his motivation? No, I, I think that there was a more prideful, intentional motivation here. I think Belshazzar was trying to make a statement comparing himself to the great Nebuchadnezzar who originally took those cups. But even Nebuchadnezzar, even he had enough respect for Yahweh not to use those holy vessels in an unholy party where you are drinking and toasting to the, to the many gods of Babylon. You have to remember, friends, that Belshazzar was no modern-day secularist who just thought, hey, holy cups are just cups, people. There are no gods that you have to fear offending by using these things. No, you have to remember that he did not deny the existence of Yahweh. Belshazzar knew he was real, but he just saw the Lord as one of many gods out there, and clearly he saw the Lord as an inferior god to the Babylonian god since, since Yahweh couldn't rescue his people from, from being taken into exile. So just like Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's pride got the best of him. He convinced himself that he is above the Lord. He defied the sovereignty of the Most High God. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, God sent a cryptic message to declare his sovereign power over, over the mightiest of, 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 of human sovereigns, that his power is undeniable. And so a mysterious hand appears in the middle of the party and it writes a message on the wall. And the words that it writes are in Aramaic. That's the vernacular of the day. And so it's not as if the wise men couldn't read the message because it was in a completely foreign language. No, the problem is they couldn't interpret it. The message had to be spiritually discerned. But even though... Even though Belshazzar lacked the spiritual discernment to understand the meaning, the warning itself was sufficient enough to convict and condemn. And that's why. That's why even non-Christians can be convicted by the preaching of God's word, even if they don't have the spirit in them, giving them spiritual discernment. And that's why, friends, you shouldn't shy away from inviting your non-Christian friends to sit under biblical preaching. Or you shouldn't shy away from speaking God's word to them yourself, thinking that they're just not going to understand. Sure, yes, th th there's going to be spiritual truths that they're not going to get until they get the spirit inside them. But they can, and they need to be convicted by the word and to be under great distress at the lostness of their condi condition. That's what's happening to Belshazzar. And that's what I encourage you to continue inviting your friends to be under the word of God, the preaching of the word. You preach the word to them so that they can fall under this same, same conviction. And we go on to read that the queen enters the court to speak some sense into the room because everyone's freaking out and she's going to bring some comfort to them, um, reminding them of something, someone. Now commentators think that this is likely not the queen as in Belshazzar's wife, but this is the queen mother, that they think this is the wife of Nebuchadnezzar. She's, she's alive and well two decades later. 
And she remembers Daniel. She remembers the way that he used to reveal mysteries by the power of his God. And so she implores Belshazzar to go send for him. If you think about it, the fact that no one remembers him except for the queen mother is surprising since at one point he was basically in charge of running the entire kingdom. But that is just a humbling reminder that no matter how prominent you get, no matter how accomplished you are, you'll likely be forgotten in a generation or two. That's a humbling thought. That's a needed thought. Now, when Daniel arrives, he's offered a chance to regain his status and power, but he refuses the reward. Instead, he rebukes the king. He rebukes him because that's really what prophets do, after all. Throughout the Old Testament, we see prophets who serve in the royal court. They basically serve as the king's conscience. You know, when, when kings ignore their consciences, when kings sear their consciences by continued sin, they forget their place, and they're prone to lift themselves up against the Lord. And so the prophet's job is to be their conscience, reminding the king who's the ultimate king. And so for Daniel, his rebuke of Belshazzar culminates in verse 23. Look there with me in verse 23. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house you have brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath in whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Now, Belshazzar's sin is multi-leveled. On one hand, he's guilty of desecrating the holy and worshiping idols. And that's breaking commandments two and three out of the ten. He takes holy vessels that are consecrated for the Lord, and instead of lifting up a cup of gratitude to God, he drinks to the false gods of Babylon. That's idolatry. And we do the same thing, if you think about it. Where are the holy vessels of the Lord today? Where are the holy vessels? Are they not here in the church? Are they not us, the redeemed Christians? We're his holy vessels because we're filled with his spirit, which means, which means we'd be just as guilty as Belshazzar if we go on filling our holy bodies with the profane, using them for unholy purposes to serve the idols of unholy pleasure. We would be no different than Belshazzar. So we fall under that same condemnation. Now, desecrating the holy, worshiping idols, that's reason enough to condemn but there's really a more fundamental problem here. It says at the end of verse 23 that Belshazzar failed to honor God. That's really what's being focused on. You see, he failed to see that even his breath is in God's hands. That means he couldn't even take his next breath if God didn't allow it. And if that's the case, 
If that's true, then the same would apply to his throne and his power and his riches, that they're all from the Lord, from his hands. Everything he has, everything he enjoys is grace. Everything is a gift from God. Everything he has, and yet he does not honor God. Instead, he insults him. That's what pride does. That's what pride does. Pride stares back at the great I am and says, no, I am. I'm the the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. That's pride. And all of us are guilty of it. You see, when you you try to picture a proud person, don't just just think of of the loud, boisterous man who's always boasting of his his accomplishments. Don't don't just think of the the vain woman who's always fishing for, for, for compliments. Yes, those are obvious examples of pride. We know it when we see it. But the proud would also include the quiet, hard-working, self-reliant man or woman who feels like they've earned their keep, who feels like they've worked hard for all that they have, and they don't feel the need to give credit to anyone, God included. So all of us, all of us deal with pride in one sense or another. All of us are as guilty as Belshazzar. And Really, it's God's mercy to confront us with this. It's God's mercy to say something, to not let us just soak in our pride. If we continue to do that, if we continue to feed our pride, we continue to lose our very humanity. You see, we are most human. We are most human when we are living according to God's design for us. And we are designed, as Scripture tells us, to worship the Creator. We are designed to reflect the glory and the beauty of the Creator. And so when we go on living our lives to be worshipped ourselves, to be praised ourselves, to be glorified ourselves, we become less and less human every day. We see that principle ring true in Nebuchadnezzar's own experience as we saw in chapter 4. Daniel even reminds us of that in verse 20. Look in verse 20, talking about Nebuchadnezzar. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. So the more prideful we get, the less human we get. The more we defy God's godness, the more we lose our humanness, the more we descend into a beastly mindset when we're always just trying to win, we're just trying to to dominate, we're trying to be the fittest in order to survive, we are unable to empathize with the wounded and the weak in our lives. We become like beasts. Friends, the writing is still on the wall for you. God is confronting your pride today because he cares too much. He is confronting your pride because he cares too much for you to lose your very humanity. So 
You can either humble yourself right now or you can let him humble you. Accept his discipline. Accept his loving rebuke in whatever form it comes. Because as the proverb says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. How much more from a loving, loving God. So the two warnings we've seen so far are this. Don't ignore the inevitability of death and don't defy the, sovereign, uh, the sovereignty of the Most High God. The third and final warning for us is found specifically in verse 22, and we can put it like this. Don't fail to learn from the error and example of others. You see, Belshazzar had the advantage of a predecessor who was prone to the same sins and to the same, making the same mistakes. But instead of learning from the past, instead of learning from the error and example of others, Belshazzar chose to learn the hard way. Look at verse 22. After mentioning all that God did to humble Nebuchadnezzar and then to restore him, Daniel says, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. He knew all this. He, he knew full well the divine judgment that Nebuchadnezzar faced, and yet he failed to learn from it. He had all the knowledge, but it didn't change his behavior one bit. In spite of all he knew, Belshazzar lifted himself up against God, and, and you know, just like his, his forefathers did, he, he didn't learn from history and as we're told, he's bound to repeat it. For Belshazzar, the writing on the wall really was more than just a warning. For him, it was a pronouncement of judgment. His time had come. And for him, the prospect of repenting had passed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson was his judgment. If you look at verse 25, Daniel tells us exactly what those words mean. Verse 25, it says, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, that's the singular form of Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So the three words taken together mean this. Your days are numbered, Mene, means numbered, you have been weighed, tekel, and found wanting, and your kingdom will be divided, parson, divided between the Medes and Persians. But Belshazzar knew this was coming. He knew what happened to his forefathers. He knew what God would do to him if he continued on the same path, and yet he changed nothing. And so, friends, what this tells us is that Mere knowledge of God, mere knowledge of how he deals with sinful man in the past, in the pages of Scripture, is simply not enough. You can know Nebuchadnezzar's story. You can know Belshazzar's story. You can know all this, but if it doesn't change into translate into changed behavior, if it doesn't translate into changed values and changed priorities, then all that biblical knowledge is pointless. It's meaningless. Just knowing the error and example of others is not enough. The goal 
is to learn from it. And learning from it means living differently in light of it. It means choosing for yourself a different trajectory of life. Years ago, I, I led a D group, you know, the, the discipleship groups that we have for our high schoolers. I led a group of five high school boys in whose lives I poured out my own. And I remember after they graduated from high school, I, I took them on a trip down to Corpus Christi and we had a blast. It was really fun. But one evening, I got serious with them. And I, I sat them all down in the hotel room and I pleaded with them. As they were about to go off to college, I pleaded with them not to make the same mistakes that I made when I was in their shoes. I told them, you're gonna be tempted to ignore my warnings and to make the same foolish choices that I made because, because you want to have firsthand knowledge. You want to experience these things for yourself. And I begged them, I begged them not to despise the blessing of secondhand knowledge especially when it comes to sin and its consequences. It is a blessing, a true blessing to have fellow Christians in your life who have gone on before you in the path of discipleship, who are warning you before you come to a crossing, telling you, don't go down this path. There is nothing good waiting for you at the end. Nothing but misery, nothing but regret. Don't Go there. If you have someone speaking that kind of loving warning into your life, please, please don't despise that blessing. Don't trample on it. Don't ignore it. So to all of my, my young brothers and sisters in Christ, I beg you to, to listen intently to the older Christians that God has placed in your life. If you have Christian parents, if you have an older believer, a discipler, a D-group leader, please heed their warnings when they tell you not to make the same mistakes that they did because there's going to be plenty of temptations in your life. There, there are going to be plenty of tough choices that you are going to have to make. And just knowing what the Bible says, just knowing the testimony of your parents or of your disciple or your pastor, just knowing their past mistakes is not going to be enough. You need to actually learn from it. You need to appreciate that sometimes secondhand knowledge, secondhand experience is the best kind. You don't need to experience it for yourself. You don't need to go there. Because you can't, you can't presume that your story is going to end up like Nebuchadnezzar's. I mean, who's to say? Who's to say that, that you're going to go down this prideful path of rebellion when you're losing your humanity, and then one day you're suddenly going to repent and be restored? Sure, yes, that, that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, but who's to say that's going to happen to you if you keep going down that same path? How do you know your story will turn out the same? How do you know that you won't end up like Belshazzar? What if you end up so far down the path where there are no more warnings left but just the pronouncement of judgment and an immediate downfall? But you know, that's why this story is here. That's why chapter five was written for us, to warn us 
not to presume upon God's grace to think that chapter 4 in Nebuchadnezzar's story is always what happens. No, there are instances of chapter 5. Chapter 5 could very well be our story. And so don't take God's grace for granted. Don't fail to learn from the error and example of others. I want to be clear here. I want to be clear when I say that no one's story has to end like Belshazzar's. There is grace available to the worst of sinners. There is grace available to all sinners. You just have to recognize yourself as one. You have to fall at the feet of the gracious one of the gospel. There's this one place in the gospel of John where the Pharisees drag the Pharisees drag this adulterous woman in front of Jesus in order to test him. And they ask him whether or not that she should be stoned to death in accordance to the law of Moses. And scripture says that, quote, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And no one knows what he wrote. But whatever it was, to the Pharisees, it was a word of judgment. It could have been something like, Nene, nene, tackle, parson. Because they walked away condemned. They walked away ashamed of their sinfulness. But friends, to that woman, whatever Jesus wrote with his finger was clearly perceived as a word of mercy. Because he, he, says, he says that he's not here to condemn her, but to save her, to change her so that she sins no more. So the friend, friends, the whole point is this. You have to turn to Jesus. Maybe some of you need to turn back to him. Maybe some of you have never turned to him before. And this is, this is the call to you, to turn to Jesus. If you keep waiting, you keep pushing it back for another, for another day, then many, many tekel parsons could very well be waiting for you on the wall one day when you least expect it. But today, as long as it's called today, I can confidently say with the authority of God's word that Jesus has another message for you. He is writing on the wall for you. Come, come to me, you heavy laden. Receive my mercy. Receive my forgiveness. Come and sin no more. That's his message to you. You don't have to end up like Belshazzar. Just remember, defiance will certainly result in downfall, but repentance in Christ always leads to restoration. Let me pray. Father, reveal to us your message. Reveal to us your warning. Show us clearly what you want us to hear. And Lord, thank you for your son and what he has done, that he writes to us a message of mercy, a message of grace, telling us to come, to, to, to heed the warnings, and to come to him for rescue. Thank you, O oh Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.